I think we've been experiencing a long-term trend here where learning and development has been pushed onto the employee, right? I think that it's become your responsibility to kind of educate yourself throughout your career. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Providing practical and valuable education and credentials is critical to the role learning businesses can play in creating and maintaining a skilled workforce. In this episode, number 352, we dig into the causes and solutions to the skills gap in a conversation with David Capranis, Director of Market Strategy and Research at Wiley University Services. Jeff and David talk about the report David co-authored titled Closing the Skills Gap, Employer Perspectives on Educating the Post-Pandemic Workforce. And they get into related topics such as the growing relevance and appeal of alternative credentials to both learners and employers, the rising demand for softer skills, the role of learning in employee retention, empathy, partnerships to support career-connected education, and educational tourism. Jeff and David spoke in March 2023. The main focus of our discussion today is a report recently released that you co-authored with Andrew Magna, and that's titled Closing the Skills Gap, Employer Perspectives on Educating the Post-Pandemic Workforce. So could you give us a little bit of background on that report, how it came about, why you were seeing the particular need to do research on the skills gap right now? We, we see ourselves in this space in between employers, educators, and those that need to be educated, right? The learners out there. And one thing that we were seeing is a theme from a lot of our employers is just this acknowledgement of a gap in the skills that they would like to have in their organizations versus the ones that they either currently have or see in the open market. And so a few years ago, we did our first survey back in 2019, kind of pre-pandemic days. And then, of course, through seeing a lot of the shifts and changes just in the kind of global marketplace, the workforce out there, we decided it was important to do another one towards the end of the pandemic to just see what's happening in the market today. And I definitely want to get to the post-pandemic aspect of that because it, it does seem like a lot changed because of the pandemic and want to home in on that. But just the skills gap in general, I'd love to get more perspective on that. You know, we've been hearing about a skills gap for many years, as you indicated, you've done some research in the past around this. But I, I do occasionally come across people who say, well, there is no skills gap. This is fiction of the of the employers. It does seem to be based a good bit on employer perception. So what's your sense of how employers arrive at that perception? You know, is it just what they're kind of ex feel like they're experiencing or is there data that they tend to be drawing on? I don't know if that's assessments that they're giving their employees or prospective employees, but how are they really determining that, yes, there is in fact a skills gap here? Yeah. So as any good social scientist, I'll probably say it's a bit of both, right? right. Uh, there, there's a mix of things that are happening. I think there is the sort of intensity around it probably does wax and wane with what kind of a market we're facing on the employment side of things. I think we were in a pretty tight labor market maybe a year ago when this survey was conducted, where maybe it's loosening a little bit now with some layoffs. But I think you can, you just get that sense out there, but you can really see it in the data too. So you can see jobs staying open longer. It's harder to fill certain positions. Things along those lines are actual kind of 
mathematical signals that we're getting on top of the more kind of feelings part of it. It was interesting for us to see actually in the data and in the report, you can see that we asked this question back in 2021 of a number of different levels throughout the organization. Are you experiencing a skills gap right now? And the C-suite was saying, definitely yes, right? We had a pretty big response in that group, but front level managers, not so much. Now, kind of during and post pandemic, everybody's on the same page now. Everybody's kind of bubbled up to that idea that there is a skills gap out there. So that's another interesting kind of factor too, I think, depending on where you sit in an organization, maybe you see it earlier or feel it earlier than in other places. And why do these skills gaps emerge in the first place? I mean, I guess this may be at the root of sort of the connection to the higher education, but is it purely an education thing that the people just aren't trained to, to do these jobs or what else is going on that causes a skills gap to emerge? I don't know if education is the only thing that's out there. It's interesting when we thought about this a few years ago, the big concern was baby boomers exiting the workforce, right? So we had this sort of, let's call it a knowledge drain or a skills drain on the horizon where you get a lot of these people aging out of professions. And the thought was maybe the average age or average experience in a profession would really be declining in the next few years. And so that was the cause of a potential skills gap. I think education always, you know, you get these uh, attitudes out there that it's like, oh, the folks coming out of college are underprepared. That's a pretty common article that we see written out there in, in the media. But when you do some of this survey work and you actually ask the folks that are hiring and training these people, we don't see that quite as much from them, that attitude. Yeah, it seems like retirement would be an issue. And I know during the pandemic, too, we had this whole concept of the great resignation happening and people kind of exiting jobs that maybe they didn't want to be in in the first place and sort of saw, saw the door open for that. I mean, the title of your report does specifically reference the pandemic. And one of your key findings is that the skills gap did, in fact, spread to more organizations during the pandemic. And can you talk a little bit more about the impact that the pandemic had, why it made the skills gap spread? Did it make it deeper or different at the same time? Yeah, I think you're right to call out that great resignation piece of it. I think we had something on the order of 50 million people leave their jobs willingly, right? Willingly sort of disconnect from their jobs over the last few years as they're sort of redefining what's important to them. We see a lot of different reasons for that. People are doing it for higher pay. They're doing it for quality of life issues, things along those lines. And so this realignment is obviously going to cause potential pain points for some organizations as they lose folks that would have been highly skilled. And they're going to they're going to turn to kind of newer, younger employees, and they're obviously not going to have the same tenure as those. That's where you get some of that misalignment, some of that friction in the market. And that's where I think a lot of the skills gap can be created. And can you say a bit more about the difference between what are typically called soft skills in this versus hard skills. I noticed that there's been, according to the report, a big jump in demand for softer skills. And I thought it was interesting that there's also been sort of a drop in the demand for harder skills. How is that dynamic playing out? Yeah, so it's interesting that we're still even kind of talking about this hard and soft skill mm -hmm. dynamic. I think that was something that some of the folks that read the report, you know, might see sort of an older frame. I think now we're often talking about things like human-centered skills or business enablement skills or some of these new frames to think about this type of uh, skilling. What we did, though, is we asked these questions over a period of two or three years, and it was interesting the intensity level on some of those harder skills waned, while the intensity level on some of these softer skills grew during the pandemic or post-pandemic period. Our thinking around it is that especially there's a few different things that are happening here. One is, I think, collectively, socially, 
I think we're a lot more interested in empathy than we have been in previous times, right? So it's not just a buzzword. It's something that's finding its way into a lot of our decision making. It's something that is, I think we're seeing that sort of happen in the corporate space, a lot more focus on empathy. I think beyond that, you've got some real structural things that are happening where, for example, moving a team to remote work, right? When you've got a distributed team, things like keeping that team together, keeping them engaged is going to be a little bit more tricky, a little bit more of a softer skill, kind of longer term durable skill uh, that's going to be needed rather than, you know, maybe only focusing on like the project management or the time management element of it. Right. And so I think a lot of organizations are understanding this. Another theme that's out there is retention. Right. And so a lot of because of the great resignation, like we just mentioned, there's a lot of folks exiting the workforce. There's a lot of people leaving uh, for better work, things along those lines. And so I think companies are really concerned with, well, how do we retain folks? And a lot of that comes from the soft skill side of the ledger. And I guess it would make sense to particularly if you have a concern with getting younger employees, uh, new entrants into the workforce at the level that you would want. Not that younger people don't have those sort of soft skills, but you do develop those over time. I mean, as you're in the workforce for a while and figure out how to kind of navigate and negotiate the space, it's to be expected, I guess, that somebody coming straight in from university might be a little more lacking in, in, in those types of skills than somebody who's been in the workforce for quite a while. I think that's an interesting perspective. One of the things that we've been very focused on is how do you validate those softer skills, right? And I think that in turn, that the question becomes like, how do you build them, right? And I think that a lot of us think it's uh, skills that are definitely honed over over the length of a career. But I think it's also important to realize that there's a lot of educational opportunities out there that might be focused on how to do better brainstorming, how to communicate better, how to do things like this that are soft skills that you can learn, right? You can be taught. And I think that a lot of the companies that we're looking at and asking are more open to using alternative ways of validating those skills than just looking at experience alone. We actually found in the report, we asked a question around five years of work experience. Is that the equivalent to, let's say, university-sponsored certificate or maybe a stack of micro-credentials? And a lot of companies are now saying, yes, we will consider those as sort of equivalents to each other. We're grateful to Thinkific for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. As a Leading Learning listener, you know the importance we place on reach, revenue, and impact for learning businesses. Thinkific Plus is a new generation platform purpose-built to help growing businesses scale revenue. With Thinkific Plus, you can generate monthly recurring revenue through course subscriptions and membership programs, sell multiple seats for your learning products to a single buyer, suggest additional products in the learning flow to increase sales, and go global with 0% transaction fees and payments accepted in over 100 countries. As one quick example, entrepreneur and business coach Ellie Diop uses Thinkific Plus for her Ellie Talks Money Academy. She's generated over seven figures in revenue and nearly 50,000 people purchased courses in her first year alone. Right now, Thinkific Plus is offering leading learning listeners one month free for a limited time. But that offer is only available if you go to our special URL. So go to thinkific.com slash learning to learn more and try out the platform. That's thinkific.com slash learning. You mentioned retention and have touched on recruiting just a little bit. And I want to sort of resurface those again because, I mean, one of the things I got from the report that, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about 
myself so much before is that there's more to a skills gap than just the idea that a person coming to a job maybe doesn't quite have the skill set they need at that point in time to to do the work that's needed. I mean, that's kind of the the obvious uh, understanding of what a skill gap could be. But as the report brought out, there's really something of almost kind of a vicious cycle there that kind of once you have that, it does start to feed into recruiting and retention. And I mean, it almost feels like a skill gap can have the potential to sort of spiral out of control. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit? Yeah, I think that was something too that we'd been wondering about and we wanted to test as a question out there, this idea that if you have an existing skills gap, does that make you a less desirable place to work, right? And I think now more than ever, there's transparency on what it's like to work for places. You know, we have the emergence of things like Glassdoor and all these other websites out there that'll sort of do ratings on employers. And so I think some of the HR professionals out there have an awareness of this and think that, hey, if we've already got these existing challenges, maybe that makes us less desirable and that, like you said, creates a bit of a vicious cycle. So, you know, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that there there is an issue out there, e- even having raised the question about whether the skills gap exists. I, I think it does. We see it ourselves as an employer. It can be hard to fit the people to the job in all sorts of ways. So can you talk a little bit about then what we do to address it, whether you're an employer or whether you're an education and credentialing provider? And I will sort of give a call out to that throughout the report, you know, at the end of each section, you make some suggestions and then you have a nice checklist for employers at the end, a nice checklist for educators at the end. But maybe you could cover a little bit of that here. What do you do if you're an employer? What do you do if you're an education or a credentialing provider? Yeah, thanks for that. So we tried to build this report in such a way that it made sense for both audiences, because I think a lot of how we see ourselves is sitting in between those two audiences. We see them both as potential kind of partners with us to think through career-connected education. Part of that on the university side, a very retail type experience, right? So adult learning and there's an online shopping cart and you come in and you take your certificate and you leave, you know, those sorts of operations. I think on the employer side too, it can be things where hey, maybe we bring someone in for a three-day seminar, you kind of learn in the building and you keep that all siloed. What we think is the best opportunity though is to connect those groups better, right? So let's find ways to bring groups of employees to the university. Let's find ways to offer, for the university to offer content that is maybe leveraging a case study for a local employer, right? Or connecting to, to different employers. I think there's a lot of opportunity for these groups to be interacting. And we actually found that Maybe half the companies out there said that they did partner with some sort of university or college or school to get this work done, but it was 75% had done it in the past. So it seems like there was a little bit of pulling back. Maybe it's an every few years sort of thing. We think that could be ratcheted up quite a bit and there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, we definitely see a lot of room for more partnerships and deeper, more meaningful partnerships than maybe we've been seeing so far. And as you indicated, it does seem like it can be sort of a sporadic thing rather than a truly strategic thing that organizations are pursuing over time. I want to focus in on something you mentioned a little bit already, and this is around kind of different ways to validate that an employee might be job ready, might have the skill set, or at least be approaching the skill set that's needed. Traditionally, a degree has been the big thing. And, and it's clear that employers still look at, at degrees, obviously, in spite of the, 
the fire that higher education has come under for cost and everything else, it's still an important thing. But it does seem like we're finding other types of experience and other types of credentials emerge as being more important than they have been in the past. Can you talk a little bit about the willingness of employers to consider candidates who've earned other types of credentials? Yeah. So one of the questions that we asked specifically was just that, right? What credential are you most open to using to validate a skill? So this might not specifically be a hire of someone, right? But it might be just to validate a specific skill that you're looking for. And it was interesting for us to find that actually industry certification trumped college degree in a lot of places. And so what that could be is anything from some obvious ones, right? Like maybe I would rather have a certified public accountant than just someone with an accounting degree. Maybe I would rather have, or I would definitely rather have a licensed nurse than just someone that happened to have taking some nursing classes or things along those lines, right? There's some obvious ones that are out there, but even you could imagine ones like maybe I'd prefer a PMP professional to someone with just a project management degree and going kind of down from there. I will say, though, that college degree is still very high, still definitely probably the best way to signal a well-rounded candidate in a lot of spaces. But we were seeing things like college certificates, boot camps, badges, MOOCs, project portfolios, things along those lines, not only kind of competing a little bit with other validation tools, but growing, too, over time. Right. So the interest in these things, I think, is shifting and HR professionals are getting much more comfortable with using something like a certificate or a boot camp experience or things like that to validate a skill than maybe they would have been a few years ago. I'm glad you brought up that point too about three certifications actually having a little bit of edge over college degrees. I actually have that in my notes. I think it was 51% to 45% in terms of what HR professionals would look at in, in, when assessing skills and employability. Um, and I know a lot of our listeners, will, their, their ears will perk up when they hear that because a lot of them are offering different types of certifications. I also, I, I noted down, I'll quote this, this says, during the last three years, more employers have become open to interviewing candidates with specific experience or credentials instead of a college degree. And of course, that last three years marks the pandemic. Was that just sort of a, the pandemic helped to kind of pry open that, that openness to, to those alternate experiences? I mean, it has to be part of, of what we consider when we're evaluating this, right, that it's a really tight labor market. Like we mentioned before, the sort of workforce participation rate is down. We get people maybe exiting good jobs to get even better jobs, things along those lines. It was very kind of an employee market versus an employer market. But these are long term trends, right? The sort of strength of digital badges and micro credentials and certificates and things along those lines has been on an upward trajectory. Maybe it spikes a little bit during this kind of pandemic, post-pandemic period, but it looks like it's something that's going to continue to see some strength in years to come. As you rightly note, these are long-term trends we're talking about. You're obviously taking a snapshot of a point in time now, but you've done research in the past, and I'm sure you will return to doing this type of research in the future, kind of re-examine this landscape. If you look three to five years out, just based on you know, the trajectory you're seeing right now, what would you expect to be the same or to be different when you do this research a few years out? I think we've been experiencing a long-term trend here where learning and development has been pushed onto the employee, right? I think that it's become your responsibility to kind of educate yourself throughout your career. There's a lot of reasons for that, why that might be a better model. People have more fluidity. They move between jobs more. 
you know, there's easier access to these sorts of tools, especially through online learning. So there's a lot of things swirling together to make that a trend. But I think moving forward, what we're going to get is more sophistication around actually evaluating these things. I know myself, I've taken a number of adult learning classes. They're not all created equal, right? But they all kind of look equal on my LinkedIn profile. So it's one of those things where I think we're going to get HR professionals. We're going to get probably even even companies kind of stepping in and getting uh better ways of evaluating that learning and really kind of getting to some more standardization where we kind of understand, oh, this is what a certificate is. This is what a micro-credential is. And maybe this is the actual skills validation that came from it rather than just sort of a black box of they did some adult learning. Yeah, I think that is very true. In fact, we've had, you know, some people, organizations represented on the show, like um, one EdTech, for instance, that used to be IMS Global, where they're really working around standards around digital credentials and how do you have some common language around that for employers and for um, the issuers and for the learners. I, I know it wasn't explicitly, I don't think it was anywhere buried in there explicitly as part of this report, but I imagine it's probably something you've seen or thought about that whole idea of the employee really being responsible for ongoing learning education at this point. And I, I know I've read in the past, I believe probably Google, Microsoft, some of the big tech companies are actually trying to assess that in their job candidates. Can we see evidence that this person is a, a lifelong learner, that they are invested in continuing to learn and grow? And that's actually something they're looking for. Have you had any conversations or seen any evidence around that in, in working employers? Yeah. So Obviously, you see it with employers, but it's interesting. I see it with the students, too, Mm. right? So some of the work that I do is surveying learners in maybe online bachelor's and master's programs, things along those lines, and in a survey that we do every year called the Voice of the Online Learner. And in that survey, we ask a lot of questions about how are you approaching your learning throughout your career, right? And what's sort of your plans moving forward? And these are folks that are mid-master's degree, and they're they're already telling us we're open to getting more, right? We're I'll probably be back in a few years and get another certificate. A lot of them actually say they really want to come back to the same source of education and be almost repeat customers, for lack of a better term. So I think what we're seeing is an emergence of an educated class, a group of people that that just sort of know that they need to kind of readdress these skills over time. And when I connect that to some of the skills gap research that we did around what's the shelf life of a given skill, right? How long can you have a given skill before having to need to train it or retrain it? We see those those lifetimes are pretty short, right? A lot of the mm-hmm. employers only think that maybe three to five years for a given skill. So I think it's something where we're seeing is that there's always going to be a place for this four to five years of education kind of at the beginning of your adulthood, but it's something that you're going to have to continue and maintain throughout your life just because the pace of change in society and technology and everything else is moving so quickly. I think there's no way that you can learn it all in your 20s and not kind of recalibrate throughout your career. And that that does seem to be a, it's a strong message that comes out of the report. I think it's just kind of a strong message in the sort of work and learning landscape. I know for educators, for example, in your checklist at the end, the imperatives that you gave them and you've there was something similar for employers, I think, kind of to repeat process again and again, because, yeah, I mean, people have to keep coming back to this stuff. The skills change, the education and training necessary for the skills change. And obviously um, that goes you know, to the educators, goes to the employers, and most of all goes to the learners themselves. Well, that's something that's so important in in the learning design consultation that we do. We, we speak to um, our university partners and, and learning partners and tell them, plan this with the idea that you're going to have to update it, right? Because I think historically, you would get content that would sit on the shelf for years, right? Like a comparative literature program maybe doesn't have to change much over a 10-year period, right? But 
uh, if you're going to be doing something in strategic analysis or, you know, something doing with data, the tools change, the techniques change. There, there's a need for refresh um, pretty often. So build that in, have that adaptability, kind of understand those refresh rates. And most of all, probably plan for it, right? So plan for it fiscally, plan for it with staffing, be ready to make those updates. And it does seem to be a, a strong argument for, um, and probably a, a driver of one of the, the key trends out there is towards smaller chunks of content, smaller learning experiences, so that they can be updated more readily. They're, they're more digestible. You can kind of get at the specific bit of learning that, that you need at a particular moment or that you need to upgrade rather than, as you're saying, like having this monolithic program of learning that you can't possibly go back and repeat again. Yeah, that's such a good point. That smaller kind of leaner approach. And I think that's where we get this conversation around stackable so often, right? And I think the idea that classically, maybe it's stackable within a degree. So maybe it's your core plus electives, right? But I think also stackable in terms of what we've seen emerge in the larger kind of MOOC and micro-credential space, where in order to get this, you get maybe these three smaller products and they evolve into a larger product. I think that type of thinking is really important. And I think Thinking about that over stretches of time is what's going to be interesting because I think today those cycles are very condensed and they still end up being pretty large educational opportunities. But I think folks are going to have to think about what's my 30-year curriculum? How am I going to engage with this person? You know, one of the things that often comes up for me is as someone with an MBA early in my career, I'm managing my own work. In the middle of my career, I'm managing other people's work. You know, later in my career, I hope to manage the work of other people managing other people's work, right? And those are very different leadership skills. And so maybe I needed three different leadership courses throughout my life rather than the one that I took 10 years ago. Yeah, it's a good point. I think increasingly people do have to really consciously look at their life as a trajectory and, and their work as a, and career as a trajectory and what types of learning are going to have to happen across that trajectory if you are going to be successful and just frankly achieve the the fulfillment and satisfaction that, that you want to out of life and work. I mean, arguably that's always been the case, but it just feels so much more urgent in these days with everything being feeling so fast paced. Well, I think there's a lot more opportunity for validation too, right? So it's maybe you do that on your own. I think there's always been folks that are going to kind of engage with material and learn and take books and stuff. But I think now this more formalized way of showing it to other people that you've done it is something that becomes more important as we have careers change a lot more dynamically than they did historically, right? So uh, when you look at someone from my generation, they're going to change employers' careers many more times than people from baby boomers, Gen Xers. You know, it's going to continue to see more of that dynamism at play and you're going to have to kind of validate what you've done more, I think, than you have in the past. Well, we've obviously been talking about um, what employers and educators need to do, but also what learners, individuals need to do throughout career, throughout life. I'd be interested. It's always interesting to hear from our guests what you yourself are doing, um, you know, as you think about your own life and career tra trajectory and how you uh, approach lifelong learning. And we're talking about skills here. So, you know, maintaining, updating your own skills. How do you approach all of that? What are some of your habits, practices, things that, that you do? Yeah, thanks for the question. So it's, it's really a blend of things. Uh, in my role, data is really important. So over time, I've kind of refreshed skills on data analysis and statistical methods, things along those lines. Technology is an important part of it. So I've taken classes and things like Tableau, for example, as data visualization became more important to us. Uh, and I was noticing people on my team were a lot more effective at certain tools than I was. It's, hey, I got to go out and I got to do some learning in these spaces. I think for me, something that I try to balance is a mix of looking at 
kind of formal taking classes at universities, but then also uh, maybe informal education. So a lot of YouTube, things along those lines. And even in myself, I, I say to myself, well, wow, I wish I could validate what I just learned over the last few months. And so I look more and more for those educational products. Uh, one thing that I've been playing around with, too, is the idea. I haven't done it yet, but sort of education tourism. And so what I've seen is in a lot of big cities, there'll be big universities that'll offer maybe education programs that are three to five days in length, right? And it's in a city that I'd love to travel to, like New York or London. And I think that's something that's on the roadmap for me is how can I go do some learning, uh, but maybe a little bit of touring uh, as well. David Kapranis is Director of Market Strategy and Research at Wiley University Services and co-author of the report, Closing the Skills Gap, Employer Perspectives on Educating the Post-Pandemic Workforce. You'll find links to the Closing the Skills Gap report, the Wiley University Services website, and David on Twitter in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 352. David welcomes you to reach out to him, especially if you have a request for what his team's future market research might cover. And the thought leadership area of the Wiley University Services site offers a number of resources beyond the Skills Gap Report. Jeff and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable, because those ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a rating, hopefully five stars. And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a colleague or a personal note, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 352, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Mm -hmm.